Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode of the show is supported by Dialed Health. You might remember hearing from Dialed Health head coach Derek Teal on the podcast back in September when he shared some great information on optimising your riding and training. If you've not already listened, then you should definitely check it out. Dialed Health are providing strength training for cyclists worldwide and as always they're going to be getting the year started with the Dialed Health Shred, a 30 day fat loss challenge made specifically for cyclists. So if you've ever wanted to drop those excess pounds then this is your chance. Coach Derek will be providing all the information you need to help you understand how many calories to eat and how to track your food along with the specific strength training that supports your riding either with or without gym equipment. At the end of the 30 days, there'll be a male and a female winner and their prize will include a $250 Mike's Bikes gift card with international shipping and prize bundles from Specialized, Kyoku Recovery Shakes, Pinnacle Nutrition Group and Kate's Food Bars. In order to be eligible to take part, then you need to be a member of dialedhealth.com. There are monthly and annual plans and as a downtime listener, you can get 30 US dollars off the annual plan by using the code DTP30 at the checkout. Once you're signed up, you can just click the tab at the top of the homepage for the Dialed Health Shred and get started. Head to dialedhealth.com now to start moving forward and making progress with your fitness into 2021. The Dialed Health Shred starts on January the 4th, so don't hang about. That code again is DTP30, all uppercase. Don't forget to make sure you subscribe to the show. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. It's really easy to do with buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. While you're on that page, you can also join my newsletter for a weekly dose of interesting bike related stuff, competitions, products I've been enjoying and more. If you want to support the show, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and grab yourself a treat. There's t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies. They're all 100% organic, printed to order and shipped with no single-use plastic. At this point, all the proceeds go back into the podcast for equipment and software to keep improving the quality of the show. So a massive thank you to everyone who's bought something from the store already. If you're not, then please give me a follow over on Instagram or Facebook where I'm Downtime Podcast. It's a really good way for me to be able to interact a bit more with you guys and girls, so the more who follow, the better. All right, it's time for part two with Paul Aston. We pick up the conversation from when Pinkbike gave him a call looking for a European technical editor. We talk about his time at Pinkbike, that Envy review, what being a good tester requires, his dream build, some setup tips and much, much more. So without further ado... Here's part two with Paul Aston. And then in September that year, just before the last race, I got a phone call completely out of the blue while I was at the, the pump trap by my house, which had just been just been built a few weeks before. With a Canadian voice on the other end. And just completely out of the blue, no warning. Didn't know whose number it was thought this is a strange number i'll i'll answer this oh hey paul it's carl from pink bike just wondering if you'd like to come to las vegas next week for a job interview <laughs> that's like all he said or all i remember him saying yeah i thought this is definitely a wind up someone's <laughs> winding me up here it's like uh, i'm just at the pump track actually i'll can you just give me half an hour? I'll, I'll go home and um, I'll give I'll give you a call back and discuss it. Yeah. Went home, thought about it. And I thought, that's no, not a prank, a prank phone call. It's too, it's not pranky enough <laughs> to be a prank. <laughs> uh, so I went home, 
spoke to my brother. I was like, Chris, do I need to work next week? Or can I have the week off? Is that no? Have the week off. It's fine. <laughs> I, was, I was only working part-time doing bits and pieces for them. Yeah. Uh, called Carl back. I think this was on Thursday. I had a chat to him. And on Sunday, I was on a flight to Las Vegas to Interbike to try and cover the show. Wow. Amazing. Do you know what sent them in your direction? Uh, a classic case of it's not what you know, because I definitely didn't know much about them, but who you know. Right. And I got big recommendations from basically Pink Bike were looking to expand their journalism into Europe. Mm-hmm. And I got a big thumbs up from Matt Rag. Okay. He was covering the Super Enduro and the Enduro World Series at the time. Yeah. And I got on, sort of knew him quite well and met him, met him a few times over the years. Yeah. And also from Simon Payton, who I used to ride for his Descent Gear shop and we used to go to a lot of races together. And he was... I don't know what he's doing for Pink Bike. He's doing something for Pink Bike. He's doing the commentating at Crankworks, right? And he was doing he was doing bits and pieces for for Pink Bike, and he gave me a big big thumbs up as well. So I think it was those two guys mainly that put my name forward, and yeah, they gave me a call. Awesome. And so you became was it European Tech Editor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What? So, what does that role involve? Well, to start with, it was very, very. <laughs> uh, how do I say this? Very open to interpretation of what you should do. Okay. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go back. I went to Vegas. Used a DSLR camera in my life. Never written an article in my life. No, no, that's not true, actually. I had been to a couple of press camps for Dirt Magazine, which James okay. Knight had recommended me for. Yeah. So, sorry, I've got a little bit of experience there. And, yeah, I went to Vegas, tried to cover the show with terrible photos and incorrect captions. <laughs> and for some reason, they offered me a job after that. I'm not sure why. And yeah, they offered me a three month retainer to basically do whatever I wanted, which was amazing. Yeah. He was like, just Carl just said, get some bikes and test them. Nice. Do, do, do whatever you want, basically. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, through the, the sales guys were quite not influential. Helpful. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the sales guys all working with their brands. So once I was on board, you start getting emails from them saying, "Oh, I, I work for, uh, not I work. I did sales with Bergamont, for example. Do you want a Bergamont bike to test?" Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. It was great. They never like forced us to do things, but they would sort okay. of give us options. Yeah. Sometimes they'll say, oh, this year you have to do a review of, say, a specialized bike. Right. But you can choose whatever bike you want and you can do whatever kind of review you want. 
say yeah. whatever you want, but you've got to do a specialized review this year. Uh-huh. So yeah, I just went from there, just started ordering bikes and riding them and testing them, talking about them. Awesome. What What do you think makes a good bike tester or bike product tester? Oh, you need to be a very. You need to be able to ride very consistently, uh-huh. and to quite a high level. Which I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I'm quite a sort of expert level rider. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that write reviews of things that are not expert level riders, which you see at press camps quite often. Right. You need to be quite sort of. Um, you got to challenge what the, the bike companies tell you. I think because there's a lot of you got to be confident enough to challenge what people are telling you about these things Mm -hmm. so i think that's quite a big quite an important thing for a bike tester yeah basically if you can ride a bike decently think about it while you're riding it be able to think about it while you're riding it and be open to yeah challenging what the bike should be able to do or you're told it can do yeah does that make sense? I guess, yeah, I guess it's yes. Yeah, trying to see through the marketing uh, words that go with a bike or a product to make sure you fully understand and appreciate what it can do and how it does it. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially when you go to uh, press camps, which seem to be designed to minimise the amount of time you spend on the bike. And maximize the amount of time where people are telling you how good the bike is, or showing you a presentation about how good the bike is, or showing you a video of a professional level rider riding the bike and making it look amazing. Right. Um, so, yeah, they're really tough if you go into press camps and you're expected to bring out sort of a review or first ride kind of thing. They're really tough. And how, how- how long might you actually get on a bike at something like that then? Sometimes it could be maximum of an hour riding. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Which is not enough for anything. Is it to really work out whether it's any good or not? It's definitely not enough when you've woken up at four o'clock to get a flight, (laughs) (laughs) driven to the airport, flown to Spain, got picked up in Spain, driven somewhere, watched eight hours of presentation telling you how good the bike is, then taken out to dinner and given unlimited alcohol, <laughs> food, and then told you've got to wake up at eight o'clock and get on this brand new bike that you've never rode before and set it up and get used to it and ride it down a trail you've never seen before. Yeah. Yeah, it gets and half of the riding time you've got to get your riding shots for your publication. Right. Yeah. So uh, not ideal testing conditions then really. 
no, not not at all. I'm very, I'm really against uh, press camps. I think they should be banned. Really, even if it's just, I guess there's a caveat that comes with any content from those sort of things that people have not had a lot of time on the bikes. You do see that quite a lot these days that people will they will caveat their first rides or their their first reviews. Yeah, I would always do that because yeah, you just can't get you just can't get the time on the bike and. A very important thing for testing is you've got to have at least two bikes, two similar bikes, and ride them on the same track, I think. Yeah, to actually really of, feel the difference. Yeah, if you fly to a new a new uh, yeah, a new track, new terrain, new bike, new tires, new suspension, you there's there's so many things going on that it's basically impossible to to come up with a a review i think yeah and people there's a lot of uh comments or you see it in forums and stuff that you know our reviews are paid for or you know you never give a bad review on stuff um do you think that's the case like uh, uh most reviews that you read or can access a fair review do you think well Reviews are paid for one way or another. But the great thing with Pink Bike is, yeah, they never told me I had to write a positive re- review about anything. Uh-huh. And I was never sort of forced to change any of my opinions. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Um, uh-huh. A lot of things have changed, I think, since I left Pink Bike and. I'm not saying the ping bike's changed, but in the whole sort of media world. Yeah. And now people are getting paid to do to create reviews. Right. Whether or not they're getting forced to say one thing or another. I don't know, but people do get paid to do reviews. Yeah. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because everyone needs to make a living, but you also need to trust the content, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, I don't, I think it's fine that people do paid for reviews, but I think, uh, I think it's up to the big, the big media companies to now work harder at doing more critical reviews of mm-hmm. different bikes. Yeah. Because if there's some guy on YouTube just saying, oh, this bike's great. I love it. I love riding this bike. It's great. I like the colors. The suspension seems to work good. It's got good parts on it. It's light, whatever. That's fine. But I think the the big companies should really step up their testing game. What, yeah, what does, a, what does that look like then in your eyes? Like what is a, is a perfect or not perfect because we're never going to get there, but like what does a good, bike test look like for example first of all you should put all the same tires on the bikes that's uh-huh. huge um yeah they should i think that brand uh, the the testers should spend more time making the bikes fair so yeah changing tires would be the first thing to do 
Yeah. I think they should involve more riders if they're doing a serious sort of test. Mm-hmm. And I think they should also involve some lab metrics to justify what they're saying. Okay. So actually measuring stuff in a controlled environment as well as in the more chaotic actual riding environment. Yeah. So if you've got two bikes and you think one's really stiff and one's really flexy, mm-hmm. like there's, I don't have the ability to do that, but there's engineers and R and D departments all over the world that do have the ability to test and check those kind of things. Yeah. And I actually wanted to do this at pink bike and everyone was against it. I was going to get, I was going to take five downhill bikes to uh, Cube. Cube agreed to do it for me. Mm-hmm. So I could take uh, five downhill bikes there and they would put them in their sort of stress testing jigs or flex testing jigs. Yeah. And give me all the data from them. Yeah, that would have but, been really uh, interesting. Yeah, because was, that was the last main thing I did for pink bike was I think I had five or six 29er downhill bikes. Yeah. And uh, I'd all the, I got all the same tyres on them. They all had Rock Shocks or Fox suspension, 50 50. Mm-hmm. And even when you've got the same tyres and the same suspension and the same settings, or mostly the same settings, it's unbelievable how different the bikes are. Yeah. And yeah, it'd be great to get some. Some yeah, some real numbers out of a lab to sort of justify what you what what you're saying. Yeah. Do you think there's anyone out there at the moment doing a good job of that or a good enough job of that? Do you think that there's room to improve? I think the I'm gonna get the name wrong. Enduro Mag, Enduro MTB yeah, Mag. Yeah. Yeah. German guys. Yeah. They do a really good job, I think. And they've done some things over the last few years like brake testing in the in the lab mm-hmm. as well as comparing it with the sort of feel on the trail yeah and they do quite good group tests with big groups of testers different kinds of testers and they do yeah i think they're doing a really good job nice um there's a few other guys like yen stout from mtbnews.de he does some really good stuff uh-huh. and the most underrated bike reviewer in the world is alan muldoon from mbr i think okay why is that he is a really good rider and i don't know he's just every time i've been to loads and loads of press camps with him and he's always the one to sort of work out what what he thinks of the bike first, uh-huh. and he's all always the first one to challenge the brands about the bikes and what they say the bikes are doing. Interesting. Oh yeah, I'll have to check out some of his work. I, I don't think he's, I've read any reviews recently from him. He's only underrated because he works for just a small publication, MBR. Right. I don't know how small it is really, but 
um he does most of his stuff is for the magazine so it's quite short form yeah he does some stuff for the website as well but mostly for the print print mag yeah, yeah. yeah he's a fantastic guy and he really he really likes to drill down into like the the bike is a complete package work out why different things are doing this or doing that and he's quite meticulous on uh measuring the bikes he's the first person i saw measuring bikes at press camps right i could always take his own tape measure scales angle angle reader and he like double checked that the geometry was what it said it was yeah is it is it fair to say that there are some discrepancies in those uh geometry charts sometimes yeah yeah there's a few had a few instances of yeah discrepancies one was i think it was a felt bike that we reviewed ages ago and the it got this strange, I can't remember exactly, but strange suspension system. But Alan measured the shock and he's like, the shock won't extend to its full extension. <laughs> you've, you've like, it's like a 120 mil bike, not a 160, because the bike won't extend <laughs> enough. Yeah. And and then I checked mine. I was like, oh yeah, it's just, it's like, that's why it feels so shit on these trails. <laughs> and now I swear. Well, if you want. Yeah. We're like, that's what it feels like a cross country bike riding down this trail. Like it's only got 120 mil of travel. Madness. Um, and they hadn't real they no. hadn't realised that or no. Wow. That's what pretty it was, worrying. Was the it got a flex stay instead of a pivot. Yeah. And the flex stay was moulded at the sag point. Okay. Well, the, the, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's like sprung loaded towards the sag point. We sort yeah. of made sense in the in the presentation, but then mm-hmm. in reality, like yeah, the bike literally wouldn't extend to full travel. Like <laughs> you've made a hundred and twenty mil XC bike, and they were all the employees there looked quite shocked, and the yeah, all bikes, all the bikes were the same. Wow. Good, good on him for picking that up. Good stuff. So yeah, we yeah. talked a, a little bit about reviews, but I mean, we don't see that many bad or critical reviews of product, I guess. And I, some of that, I suppose, I suppose, is the fact that there is quite a lot of decent stuff these days in the mountain bike world. But what what's the process for delivering a like a critical review? Because I guess you're the the one that people know you best for is the envy review which was towards the end of your time at pink bike yeah yeah that's uh <laughs> yeah that one kicked off didn't it <laughs> just a bit i think it had like 700 comments or something on it yeah first of all i gotta clear up a few misconceptions about that a lot of people think that i got sacked from pink bike because of that review which right absolutely isn't true uh-huh. uh i was leaving anyway it just happened to come out just before i left right it should have been out months before but it took so long to decide whether or not it would be published and for envy to respond 
Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Envy's response took a long time. They're pretty quick, but there's a lot of turn throwing about if it was going to be published or not. But it was actually Pinkbike that pushed hard to publish it. I I wasn't really that bothered at that time. I was like, I'm leaving in a few weeks. It doesn't seem worth the sort of the uproar. Um, but yeah, that was it. Just tell the truth. I don't think it was a critical review. It was just, I just told the truth of what happened. Yeah. What, so what's the process then if in that situation? Like if you've got a product that says it can do something, you've decided you don't think it can or you don't think it's up to the job or it's not very good, do you, you don't, by the sounds of it, you don't just publish that straight away. Like you, do you talk to the brands, give them some time to, to respond? How does it work? Yeah, well, to, to use that story as an example, that was probably a six-month review in the end the first i put one of the wheels on an e-bike and used it i think i did two runs on it yeah and i went to whistler for a few weeks to do the pink bike field test and i left ben winder to get some photos of that e-bike i think it was a specialized mm-hmm. just uh for a different bike review so i sent ben out with one of the kids from the local shop to he was going to be the model a guy called Federico and he basically took the bike rode 50 metres down the trail went off a little jump there's like no jumps in finale he went off like a tiny the only tiny fly off we have and yeah the front wheel just completely failed so then I got onto Envy they sent another a replacement rim I rebuilt that onto the the existing hub so obviously that takes a bit of time that's probably three or four weeks to get the rim shipped from the us and then get it out of customs uh rebuild it and then the second wheel just broke again after a few a few runs and not doing anything major just riding the tracks that i ride all the time that's my local track Mm-hmm. from the house down to, down to town I ride it all the time and that's the only wheel I've ever broke on that track um, so then again got back to them they sent another one out to replace which took two months this time to get through customs in Italy <laughs> and then I got the and I wrote most of the review by then and I got the but I thought, I'm going to get another one, another rear one, and sort of give it the benefit of the doubt. And then it came in the, I can't remember what happened. I think the spoke holes weren't in the center, and it stabbed me in the finger with a carbon shard. And I just thought, oh, I'm not going to, that's it. I'm just not going to do any more with this. It's just a waste of time, really. So just emailed Envy, said, this is a review. That, well, I finished off the review emailed it to MV and said, this is a review. We're planning to publish it in next week or the week after. Gave them the date. Yeah. Do you want to do a response? And they did. They did a response. And I think they had two weeks to finalize their response. And they did. Initially, they gave me a really short response. 
because they thought we were in a rush to publish it. And then we said, no, we've got we've got a few weeks, so if you want to give a, a better response, you can do that. And to be fair to MV, they didn't ask me to change it. They didn't ask me to not publish it. They didn't ask me to test the wheels any further to check. I didn't have any, you know, just bad luck the first time, mm-hmm. the first two times. So, yeah, they, they were quite fair, really. But yeah. maybe if they knew how much it was going to blow up in the comments, they would have uh taking a different approach to it i guess it's just it's it's just really unusual isn't it to see something i mean whether you were unlucky or whether there was an issue with the product irrespective of that it was a really bad customer experience and shared on you know one of the biggest mountain bike platforms in the world we just don't we're not used to it i suppose i guess that's partly why there was so much response to it it's massive. I had dozens and dozens of messages from people saying they'd had similar experience or they completely agreed or they used to have a shop that um so I don't want to hammer any more nails into No, um, that's fair. MV's coffin, but yeah, I had a lot of people agreeing with me and saying mostly saying, Well, fantastic, we can't believe that somebody actually published something like that and like glad to see that journalism is still alive in some ways. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I tried to. I always tried to tell as truthful as I could what I thought about the bikes and the products and how how I thought they performed because it seems. Sorry, I need to think about this. That's okay. So going back to the paid reviews, for example, the people Mm. that are doing the paid reviews, and I'm not saying anything bad about them, but if you're paid to review, you're getting money from a brand. And really, you want to keep the brand happy so they give you more bikes to review and you get more money, which is Uh absolutely fair from a business standpoint. Yeah. I, my opinion was, I don't care about these brands. They're all businesses. They're making money. They're selling all this stuff. I don't care about them. I don't care if, hopefully this doesn't happen, but I don't care if someone from a brand loses a job because I've told the truth about their bike. Right. What I do care about is the people spending the hard-earned money on bikes that aren't the right bike for them or isn't a good bike or isn't a good isn't a good product yeah so i was mostly i was always think of like the probably the average middle-aged man who rides a bike could be a man or a woman but generally i'm gonna say a 40 year old man he's probably the average mountain biker at the moment yeah fair comment and if that guy is He's at work all week. He's probably got a job that he doesn't really like that much. He's might have like a big mortgage, stress. Uh, probably has a wife and kids, which are great things, but can also be a stress on life. And he's got his bike, or his passion of mountain biking. He goes out once a week to an uplift day or 
to go and pedal around the trail center. And maybe once a year for one week, he gets that like one, one week holiday in Morzine or one week holiday in Whistler or one week holiday in Scotland. Yeah. And these people that spend all this time and effort, yeah, working, looking after the family, paying the mortgage, earning money to buy these bikes, reading all these reviews, buying the bikes, looking at the bike, setting the bike up, all this, like the whole thing around riding the bike once a week for their escape or for their passion or for the, you know, things that they enjoy. Yeah. I just couldn't face seeing one of those people on a bike that I thought was shit and I said it was good. Yeah. Because I thought I should say, or I thought I should keep the company happy. Uh-huh. I thought I should keep my boss happy. I just couldn't stand. I'm just imagining the scenario of seeing the guy, the queue, the telecabine in the summer on his one week holiday with his back wheel snapped in half or his frame snapped in half or his brakes not working or any of the things that, that could happen. Yeah. So that was, that was always in my mind really when I was writing the reviews. I didn't want to wait. I didn't want people to waste their money and their time because of what I said. Fair play. Yeah, it's exactly, it's exactly the way it should be done. Do you, do you think that the reason that we don't see many overly critical or, or, you know, bad reviews of products is a reflection of the fact that there's the vast majority of product is good. Or do you think it's a reflection of the way things are structured that, you know, maybe some uh, brands or some media outlets that aren't able to, or don't feel they can put out those sort of reviews. Like what do you think's driving the fact that, I mean, you, you, you read most reviews and they're like three and a half stars is about out of five is kind of as bad as it gets. Right. Hmm. Well, yeah, there's, there's lots of, lots of reasons. One, one, you are right. Most of the stuff nowadays is, is very good and, you know, reliable. Most bikes are pretty good nowadays. There's definitely still bikes that are better than others. And there's some bikes that are a lot better than others. But yeah, in terms of, I don't know how much this actually happens. I haven't got any proof of it, but I don't know how much the money side of it affects what people like to publish. Right. But it doesn't make sense from a business point of view to put out negative reviews for anybody. Yeah, I get, well, yeah, unless you become known for that and therefore a good from a good review from you means so much more. Yeah, well, you, if you could work out a way to pay yourself or pay your employees or you, you know, earn money for your business without getting the money directly from the brands, you could, you could do more, more in depth or more critical or bad reviews. Yeah, but at the moment, True. all the income that funds the reviews comes from bike companies. I don't think anyone makes the money from anywhere else. Yeah. 
Yeah, fair play. A tricky one, huh? Yeah, it's uh... also another reason. There's, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, another reason is a lot of the test riders don't get to test the stuff enough. Right. Because there's not that many people testing stuff and there's a lot of new stuff. Yes. And most people who own these businesses are going to be pushing their reviewers to, you know, get the reviews out, keep reviewing stuff. But there's only a certain amount of stuff that someone can ride and use, you know, in a, in a week or in a year. And I think there's not that many people doing, doing it really. There's yeah, a lot true. more to review than people can review. Yeah. So yeah, if you put a drop a post on your bike for three days, it'll probably be fantastic and it'll get a good review. <laughs> but yeah, true. If you give that drop a post to somebody who lives in Scotland who rides four times a week for a year, they'll start to find problems with it. Yeah. Which, yeah. You usually the reviewers, I'd include myself in this. You you don't get enough time to ride the bikes to find out what's going to, what's going to show up as a problem. Yeah. The whole long-term review side of things is tricky, right? You can give sort of first impressions, but riding something to death almost is, uh, is hard to do. Yeah. Even some people do, do, do long-term reviews, but they're like over a long period of time, but a lot of the time they're, spending riding other bikes to review right okay yeah yeah yeah. so they might have had the bike a year but only ridden it like a handful of times yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah fair enough well let's move on a little bit from the testing side of things and um yeah well maybe tell us what made you decide to leave pink bike because it feels like potentially a bit of a dream job right yeah well it's a quite short answer to this Every year I met all the goals that we came up with at the start of the year mm-hmm. uh, for my yeah, for my job for the year. And I exceeded them every year in whatever it was in terms of how many articles I did or which events I went to or these different things. Yeah. And then every year at the end of the year, I asked for a pay rise. And every year I said no. And then every year I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll leave then. And then they always gave me a pay rise. And then the last year, asked for a 10% pay rise. And they just said, no. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll leave them. That was it. <laughs> and the pay rise never came. Fair enough. Yeah. <clears throat> but it wasn't really that good money for a freelancer at all. Right. That's why I was, trying, that's why I was asking for more money. Yeah. And what, was there a kind of an element of becoming more environmentally conscious as well. Like you're flying all over the world for press camps and, and huge amount of travel involved in something like that. Yeah, that, that was an issue. Actually, I'll just, I'll go back to the pay thing because I'm happy to divulge how much I was earning. I earned, £28,000 last year working at Pink Bike. Okay. Which sounds like quite a good salary. But when you're, you got to have your own van to move the bikes around in. 
you got to have your own computer, phones, internet connection, camera, a garage to put all the bikes in, tools to fix all the bikes. There's like a lot of stuff that comes out of that, out of that money. Yeah. And it, really, I just don't think it was sustainable for me. I wasn't trying to get more money so I could just pile up a big pile of cash somewhere. It was just so if you wanted to do if you want to do a good job of reviewing the bikes you need like you've got a lot of expenses and the last year i was paying a mechanic to help me some of the time mm-hmm. just like unboxing bikes taking the bikes to um to get picked up from the courier picking them up from the bike shop changing tires cleaning them all that kind of stuff yeah and really yeah, with with pink bike, we just completely on our own. We had to do every every aspect of the job, from ordering the bike to reviewing it, to being the photo model, to maintaining it, to to posting it back. Yeah, it's a huge amount um, of work, really, isn't it? Yeah. Where some of the some of the companies do pay similar amounts, but they have uh, you know like really good offices with mechanics and storage and full-time photographers are always on hand to go and they've got offices with computers and they get a phone provided and they might get a company car or at least a van to go away (laughs) to do testing yeah so yeah that was basically just i basically just could not earn enough money to cover all the expenses and to well and then to have enough money to live on basically yeah i guess you could have done it in a sort of cheaper, less good way, but that doesn't, that obviously wouldn't fulfill you. You clearly wanted to do the best job of reviewing product that you could. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to do a lot more. I wanted to get suspension dynos and jigs to test. Like I said before about testing stiffness. Um, I think there was, uh, to get telemetry system, there's like lots and lots of things that, I could have done to make it better, but yeah, just literally didn't have enough money to do it. Yeah. Fair play. So but yeah, the, going back to you, the, the question that you asked, the traveling around a lot for press camps. I'm quite against that now. The first year at pink bike, I think I did 56 flights in a year. Jeez. F- return 56 return flights or 56, uh, 56. single flights individual flights yeah yeah that is some of them quite a like, lot of air miles yeah some of them were long haul and or multi-stop flights um yeah yeah it just seems ridiculous like if you go to a press camp in spain and say the bike company's from germany They've driven three, four vans down with all the bikes. They've flown in all their staff. They're flying all the media for like two days. You check into a hotel. You go in the hotel. The hotel sign says, don't use too many towels because it's bad for the environment. (laughs) So you leave one towel on the towel rack. Then you check out the next day and you're riding these bikes that have been shipped from Taiwan overnight a few days before because uh, the production was late so they've had to yeah, express 24 hour ship the bikes over and then you get on the plane and you fly back just to go and ride a bike for an hour yeah 
just <laughs> like none of it really makes sense. Yeah, seems it kind doesn't of crazy, make sense doesn't in, it? in 2020. I'd say why they used to have press camps and why why they exist, but I think it's just becoming become an outdated model, really, for testing bikes. Yeah, I guess this year with everything that's been going on, it's sort of forced brands to think about launching differently, right? There's been a lot more online stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what yeah, like, the best thing is just to send just send the bike to the company before or to the tester before a few months before and just let them get on with it themselves. Yeah. But then you can't brainwash yeah. them and then they might find out something <laughs> that's wrong with it. Yeah, and you get plenty of time, yeah. right? So you've got you've got that opportunity to too find too much time, too much time to test it, yeah. <laughs> that's an issue. Yeah, yeah. How do you think the industry's doing then from a sort of environmental or sustainability side of things because it's a i mean it's a tricky one as an industry and as a sport like the the nature of it generally means it involves travel it often involves a vehicle to get where you're going as well um but yeah how do you think the industry's doing well the whole the whole thing's a, a conundrum really i think conundrum's the right word um yeah yeah we want to ride our bikes out in nature but yeah, like you said, you you get there on a plane or a chairlift, and your bikes, your carbon bikes, made in a factory in China and flown across the world, and yeah, it's absolute absolute madness, really, what we do to go <laughs> to go riding bikes yeah. and everything, everything that's behind it. But bike companies are definitely getting better. You see people coming up with uh recycling projects and they're improving the packaging and a lot of productions coming back to europe i think that's well to europe and to america yeah i think that's probably one of the biggest trends in the industry over the last three or four years that i i've seen mm-hmm. um not that there's anything wrong really with manufacturing in asia but it's just the shipping of the the stuff all around the world yeah, the quality of the product on the whole these days is good, isn't it? It's just, yeah, yeah it's the travel element yeah. of it. If you live in New Zealand, yeah, buy a, a giant bike that's made in Taiwan, that's perfect. But if you live in England, you might as well buy uh, a Stanton or Starling or an Orange or a Kotick or a BTR or any of the really cool brands that we've got in Britain. And the same, same in America. If you're in America, buy a gorilla gravity and also that leads on to much bigger benefits of if you start buying more local then it pushes other brands to to manufacture locally and it's only going to do good things for your sort of local economy and local area yeah it's still we're still at the point i guess where there's kind of pretty limited choice in some areas, certainly of of componentry and that side of things, yeah. Well, yeah, you can only you can only do the best the best that you can, really. But yeah, if you live in, uh, let's say, if you live in Iceland, you're going to get your stuff shipped there from <laughs> some from somewhere across the world, regardless. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's sort of up to up to the consumers to do the best as well as the companies. Do you think there are many people buying in that way in, in the bike world, or do you think people are still driven by 
what's cool or what you know what the hype is about at that point in time yeah people definitely like buying the latest hype and it's hilarious to see living in finale and uh every spring if you go out riding you see you can like see the color of the year <laughs> on the trailers as the drive as the trailers are driving up the hill wow that obvious yeah in march april yeah you can just see whatever sand color or whatever the color of the year is yeah um there's like a marked a marked difference from the year before from the autumn before to <laughs> yeah the first guys that get down in march april to ride and yeah. they've all got the new yeah I don't know why they brought it a lot of the time. He's brought the new one that's a new a new colour. Yeah. Do you think or new most... wheel ties or new new yeah. something? Most people that, that are travelling to places like Fanai, do you does it feel like they are getting a new bike every year, sort of thing? Um, not everybody, but if you if you come to Finale for a holiday in March and you can afford a hotel and a 60 euro a day shuttle for five days you're probably someone that's also can afford a new bike yeah fair enough um so that's just sort of the demographic of people that come here yeah um i don't think everybody not everyone wants to replace the bike every year but yeah this especially is one place where you do see you do see all the new bikes every year and you see some disgusting mixes of different parts and sometimes you think why of how you've managed to do this how you managed to spend so much money and just ended up with something so ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i guess it's i mean it's a very it's a really really complicated sport like even as someone that it's now my job to be involved in it it's pretty hard to keep up with all the technology and the standards and what fits with what and like it's, it's yeah it's putting together a list of parts to build a bike to, and being sure they're all going to fit together is you need to put some thought into it these days don't you it's not straightforward that's been one of the banes of my life for the last five years is parts turning up and not being the right ones and not fitting yeah Either I've ordered the wrong thing or the company's sent the wrong thing. I've got actually I have a little poke poke at one brand. The brand that um invented boost hubs, which a lot of people seem to be against at the time. And I'm sure I'll get a phone call from Alex later on. They I ordered some wheels a few months after Boost came out. And they, these wheels turned up and stupid. I didn't check them. I just got them in the box. I put them in my van, drove to, <laughs> drove to a bike park. And I thought, oh, I'll just put the wheels on when I get there <laughs> to test or to start testing. Got there and there were non-boost wheels <laughs> from the people that had invented boost wheels. <laughs> And I went back and checked my emails. I was like, no, I've definitely ordered Boost and they've sent the wrong ones. So even the people 
that create the new standards couldn't send the correct part. <laughs> so what what chances anybody anybody else have? Yeah, it's it is complicated. Like even a handlebar is not not the same size anymore. Like there's even options in that. It's uh, yeah, it's complex, yeah. right? It takes yeah. a lot of working out. Ah, uh, yeah. yes, yeah, great mounts, bottom brackets, headset headset sizes it's a yeah. yeah it's a nightmare complicated world yeah but going well, back talk- to your question on sustainability yeah that is something that could be massively improved and that's probably one of the big underlying problems is constantly changing stuff or coming up with new um you know new suspension systems or all these different things that people come up with just means that people have to keep buying more stuff, which is if you've read, let my people go surfing from Yvonne Schoenard from Patagonia. Yeah. The single worst thing you can do is buy a new thing. Yeah. But we are, and this happens in all industries, really you've been forced to buy new things because you, you bikes out of date within a, couple of years yeah it's it's a really tricky conundrum though isn't it i guess between like progress you don't want us you don't want the sport and the technology to not progress but in order for you to not need a new bike every five minutes it has to either progress in like bigger leaps less often or not progress quite so much does that does that make sense yeah that's true i think most of the stuff we've had for a few years hasn't really been improving the bikes that much. Okay. Like I don't think anyone could really tell the difference if the road, if they built a bike with two identical bikes, one with non-boost hubs and one with boost hubs, I don't think anyone could tell the difference. Right. Maybe like Nicola Vios could tell the difference. Or Fabian Burrell, but yeah, I don't think you could tell the difference. What? Yeah. So, what do you think has been significant then in uh, in like the progress side of things over the last, let's say, five years? Like, what would you what would you not want to be without now on a, on your bike? Good geometry is the number one, I think. Yeah. Or what I determine as good good geometry. Mm-hmm. I just think without the geometry doesn't cost anything, and there's no like real technology behind it. It's just when you when you're designing the bike, you just choose the numbers that you you want. Yeah, and um, that's the heart of the bike, really. If the if the geometry is no good, it doesn't matter how good the suspension is or how good the carbon frame layup has been tuned to absorb vibrations or flex or how efficient your drive train is if you've got a crappy bike that's too big or too small for you with a 68 degree head angle and you're trying to ride it down a downhill track you've got no chance basically yeah Um, yeah so that's the first thing to get right so yeah i think that's calming down a lot now and i think we're going to see over the next three two three four years i think the geometry will really settle down and it'll basically become the same 
I think it'll become the same on all, sorry, <clears throat> on all most brands and also different riding disciplines. Okay. Yeah. Like, I don't think we need all different geometry for all these different categories from XC to downhill. Right. There's some differences, but I think, or tried to prove with my bike that I built this year, my Nikolai G1, that you can have geometry that does everything essentially really well. Yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that because that was quite a project. It's basically like your, I guess, your dream build, do everything bike, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, started off, it started off as just a bike to to build with pretty standard, standard parts. And I had a couple of them last year as demo bikes. Mm-hmm. But that frame's got a whole bunch of adjustability from the these mutator chips. Yeah. Um, so you can basically you can do a lot of things with it. You could you can change it from about one forty travel to two ten, which is what I did. Yeah. You can have different wheel sizes, you can um yeah, just the you can be pretty extreme in the ways you can adjust the geometry. Mm-hmm. So basically, I just kept trying to improve every aspect of the bike just to make it better for what I wanted to do. Yeah. Which is basically ride up a hill and then down a hill as fast as I can. And yeah, preferably just... down the steep, steepest or steeper, gnarlier, rougher, you know, the more extreme it gets, the more I like it. Yeah. And I just found that I kept it kept getting better for the things that I like to do on it, but there weren't really any negatives for the other kinds of riding. For example, yeah, it had two hundred and ten mil travel front and rear, but if you sprinted on it, the suspension wouldn't move, so it pedaled exactly the same as if it had one hundred and forty mil of travel. Right. That's and the first thing that people would say is they'd say, "Ah, oh, but but you can't you can't pedal that bike up a hill with that much travel." But it pedals better than most most other bikes I've ever rode. Does it need kind of high end equipment to enable it to do that? Like, is the shock a big part of that being of that working, or do you think that's feasible on like a lower priced bike? Uh, no, that's that's mostly to do with the tune of it, really, which you should be able to get sort of similar tunes to with most most suspension. Okay. But yeah, it just kept getting better, and I just couldn't really find any negatives with it. Like, no, yeah. I just don't really see why, after riding it for so long, I don't see why you'd have less than 200 mil travel. It doesn't really makes sense to me and do you think do you think that's a a part of where you live and the trails you ride or do you think that's universal 
Uh, I think it's universal, really. If you wanted to, if you wanted to be an XC racer, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want it. But yeah, it's it's more to do with the setup than the actual amount of travel. So right. But I, I proved it with that bike. I did. I did a hundred and ten kilometer ride around Birmingham on it <laughs> during lockdown, which is absolutely fine. I just went out, pedaled the whole down it, no problem. Yeah. Um, I did downhill races on it. I did enduro races on it. Um, I did uh, all bike park days, everything, and you might as well just have more travel. You want to set the bike up to ride well for your terrain or how you like to ride but you might as well have more travel in this example um just for that moment when you do need it i don't really understand down country bikes or what people call down country bikes do you do do you see any benefit of the reduction in weight that a bike like that offers yeah it just makes it more fragile and <laughs> more out of control when you're going down gnarly stuff yeah but then people start off with like a lightweight trail bike and then they turn it into a down down country bike or they call it a down country bike but then they so they improve some of the parts so they can go faster on the downhills and then they start breaking other stuff because they're going too fast for what the bike can handle. It's like cracking frames and destroying wheels and different things. Yeah. I guess it's a case of being honest with yourself about what your type of, what type, yeah, what type of riding you enjoy and therefore what the right equipment is for you. Yeah. Basically, I just think everyone should have a bike that's capable of everything. Uh-huh. which I'd say my, my bike was. And you want a bike that doesn't break? <laughs> I want a bike that is solid, and I've, that bike was solid all, all year. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's a few, a few kilos heavier than an XC bike, but I don't think it's you, – your body gets used to it after a few rides. You just get, get a bit stronger, and that's it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about – cockpit setup because you've put a lot of thought into that and i think it's an area that is uh massively misunderstood or underrated in the impact it has on how a bike rides and how comfortable you feel on it like how how did you go about getting set up on that and, and any tips i guess for people to help them get their own cockpit set up as good as it can be Oof, that's uh i think i ramble on enough answering the short questions so this one it's a pretty massive subject uh okay yeah can you pick up like maybe one or two like key variables then and how you go about setting them like rather than getting into every little bit of it because like you say it's super intricate yeah the first one is i don't i think everyone should just buy push on grips not lock on grips okay because i think that that's an instant way to improve uh, comfort, especially on like long, long days riding. Because you've got more rubber, effectively more absorption. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you don't rely on a, a solid plastic core. Yeah, you just got more. Yeah, exactly, more rubber to absorb more vibrations and bumps, and just have a more comfortable ride. And is that even more critical if you're someone that likes thin grips rather than thick grips? I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, especially that. If you like, yeah, if you like thin grips, then if you like a really thin lock-on grip, I've never, I've never measured one, but you've got maybe a millimeter or less of rubber and then plastic yeah. so you basically is holding on to a solid piece of plastic or metal uh-huh. um next one is make your brake levers not flat but close to flat yeah uh the easy way to work that out is the steeper the steeper trail you want to ride down the flatter your levers should be okay and vice versa yeah so if you're a bmx racer who's racing on the flat they would have a steeper brake lever angle yeah but the more you ride downhill the flatter the levers should be to sort of counter the angle of the hill yeah then you want to move the brake levers in inboard on the handlebar enough that the end of the brake lever comes to the end of your fingertip mm-hmm. which similar to too many people having their brakes too steep a lot of people have them too far towards the end of the handlebar and they're not braking right on the end of the lever yeah and it sounds obvious but you want to pull as close to the end of the lever as you can because you get the most leverage and does actually make quite a big difference to the power if you move your finger in one or two centimeters. Mm-hmm. And you want the brake lever to be under your fingertip because, and I got this from Fabian Burrell, <laughs> stole this from him, <laughs> that the fingertips the most sensitive part of your whole hand and your whole and your finger. So you want your brake contact point to be on the most sensitive part of your finger. Uh, okay, so when the pad contact happens, you want your finger roll around the lever to be on it on the so that the fingertips on the lever rather than being further up your finger. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of people like to run the brakes really close to the bars, but then the levers like maybe on their second knuckle on their index finger. Yeah, yeah, which I don't think's a good way to do it. Okay, yeah, you want on the most sensitive parts, and you can. Uh, modulate your braking the the best yeah then ideally you want the if you draw a line between the center of both grips you want that line to pass through the center of your steerage tube and you can do that with by just in stem length bar sweep bar width also plays a role mm. and how much you roll backwards or forwards on the bars yeah and tell us a bit about why you want that to be the case because if you get that line to go directly through the center of the steering axis you get the most sensitive steering and as one hand is pushing forwards, the other one's moving backwards. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas if you have a really long stem, your hands will be arcing around in front of the steering axis, which gives you sort of a strange feeling. Okay. The caveat to that is if your bike is too short for you, you can make it worse by moving the, uh, what I just explained, I don't know what to call it, the steering axis back. So if your bike's already too short and you have a 50 mil stem, you don't want to go to a shorter stem to get the steering in, in what I think is the right place, like I just described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that and, help with the sorry. kind of, does that help with the, like the, the slacker head angle bikes can feel, the steering can feel a little bit lazy, like that flop almost. Does that, exactly, does it help yeah. with that, bringing that in line? Exactly. If you have, to finish my last point, sorry, if you've got a steep head angle, you also don't want to set it up how I just described. Okay. Because it'll become too sensitive. sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. And actually having a longer stem with a steep head angle makes the bike more stable. Right. Got you. But if you've got an, a slack head angle, and by slack, I mean under 63 or 63 and a half maximum, then, yeah, the steering gets more slow, and especially with a big, a big front wheel, big 29er front wheel, maybe a big with a big heavy downhill tire on can sort of slow the steering down yeah but the yeah moving the i don't know don't know what to call it i need to give it a name moving back <laughs> the steering axis into the center of the steer, the steering tube gives you the most sensitive steering and speeds it up and is that is that kind of like a sliding scale or a sweet spot like as you move closer to the steering axis and come back is it is it improving the whole way or is it it needs to be there to for that to really work. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it improves the closer you can get to it. Okay. I think maybe five or eight, five to eight millimeters in front is absolutely fine. And you'll get a really good, really good steering characteristic from that. Yeah. Uh, if you go behind, if you go too far back and go behind, then it gets really weird. I bet. Because then your, your hands are arcing behind the steering axis yeah that's yeah that feels that feels strange pretty alien yeah yeah so you, do yeah, you, my, you my my bike that we talked about earlier it's unbelievably sensitive the steering uh-huh. almost almost too sensitive like it's not just from the the handlebar setup it's about the balance and uh, between the front and rear wheel and lots of different things but that bike was just incredibly sensitive even with a 61 degree head angle wow 61 fair play yeah well it, it was it was changing but it was floating between 61 and 62 and a half maybe yeah interesting well, i'll have to uh, yeah i'll put a link in the show notes to the bike check for that because it's uh it's an interesting spec and you go into a lot of detail in the in the bike check so if people want to find out a bit more then about that i'll stick a link in the show notes if anyone's not had enough of me rambling they can go and read <laughs> seven thousand words about one bike that i spent about six months writing sounds good to me <laughs> maybe with a second lockdown coming in maybe people are desperate to 
<laughs> to read some rambles. There you go. Let, what have you been up to? Like, have you have you been continually like trying new products and testing new products since you left Pinkbike? Yeah, I've been trying lots of different things. Um, what stands out? Ooh. Where's the innovation coming from? One fantastic thing is Newman wheels uh, unbeatable, I think. Okay. And I was working as an ambassador for them. I think my contract mm-hmm. actually ran out this week. I maybe need to give them a, give them a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> but um, their wheels are absolutely amazing. And that's simple. Or the main reason why they're so good is the the sidewalls of the rim are just flared out slightly instead of being completely vertical. Okay. And that massively cuts down on the amount of dings you'll get on the rim. Interesting. Ah, I'm trying to get my head around that. How does that work? It's because they, I don't know how they discovered it, but during their testing, they realized that most of the impacts that ding a rim sidewall come from that don't strike the rim completely vertically. It's always from like slightly outside, a few degrees outside. Okay. So they flared the rim towards the angle of the, what should be the incoming impacts. Yeah. And then it's just hitting the sidewall head on which is much stronger rather than pushing it and folding it over into the the middle of the rim yeah and i've got a lot of their wheels and i've battered them absolutely battered them and i've given to other people to try and destroy and they just can't can't break them i broke one i broke one this year i broke a carbon one this year yeah but it's a 400 gram sample rim that I've been riding from last September to August. Yeah. And they first sent it to me saying, this is a trail wheel. Don't use it for enduro, <laughs> which is obviously the first thing I did. Yeah. And I couldn't break them and the cube team just couldn't break them. So they upgraded it to like enduro classification. Yeah. And yeah, they're just unbelievable. But then, awesome. yeah, I, I did a downhill race on it. And, of course, first race run was average. Second race run, I was having the best run I've had for years and then yeah, cracked it. <laughs> that work. So, but that was completely my own fault because, yeah, a 400-gram rim for downhill racing after you've used the same wheel for eight or nine months is stupid. So Fair enough. And anything else that's kind of stood out maybe that uh or maybe that you want to ride that you've not yet had a chance to uh, one thing i have got and i had one of the first ones uh mate that's come off the production line is the o-chain that's really good uh yeah so this takes out some of the uh well yeah it, it works to get rid of pedal kickback basically it gives some yeah some movement in the in the chain system yeah exactly it allows the chain ring to rotate backwards as the chain stretches yeah but you still you still get the same pedaling characteristics 
when you're pedaling mm-hmm. as you would with a normal chain ring but when you stop pedaling you get improved suspension action yeah so you feel more like a high pivot bike yeah that make that makes a really big difference i think i'd really okay. like to get some proper data on that but it's yeah it's great yeah, um, I've not had the chance to tr- not had the chance to try one. I'd like to uh, like to see if I could feel the difference. I'll put you in touch. I've got no no relationship with that company at all, except I think it's a really good product and would recommend it to anyone. They're, they're not paying me to say that. It's a yeah, really good thing. Yeah. And what else would I like to try? Hmm. I'm, as of last week, I'm not working for Nikolai Bikes anymore. So there are quite a few bikes I like to get get my hands on and have a go. Yeah. First being some high pivot trail bikes. Uh-huh. So hopefully, if Ollie Forster's listened to this, he's going <laughs> to forbidden. try and get on the Forbidden bike. Yeah. But I think they're sold out of everything. Wow. Okay. Fair play. Um, that new Norco, Norco Shaw, I think it is, looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That looks, I'm really, I'd really like to get one of those, actually. So if anyone from Norco is listening, get in touch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, looks, that looks right on my street. Good geometry, 108 mil travel, high pivot, solid looking frame. Um, I'd really like to try the new last Tarvo carbon frame, which looks really good. Okay. New bike made in Germany. Yeah. Um, oh, what else? Zip. I like to try the zip wheels, actually. I haven't tried those yet. Yeah, so this is the, the like kind of bit like the old Bau- Baumeister-style rim design, so more flexible. Similar. Baumeister actually now works for Crank Brothers. So the Crank yeah. Brothers wheels are based on his design, which is a a single wall rim design, which should mm-hmm. lay for more flex. And Zip are quite similar. Yeah, I think the Zip ones are much more flexible, I believe. Yeah. And Zip only makes like a, a trail bike or an enduro version, whereas crank brothers have got a whole range including like downhill strength ones mm-hmm. yeah i'd really really like to try some of those uh oh good question that one chris i'm not can't think what else i'd like to try all those if all those turned up in the post next week i'll be happy <laughs> you'd be, you'd be happy but there's no so there's no kind of innovation like anything stand out that you're like, oh, I'm, I must have that. Like uh, in the same way, I guess that dropper posts when they started were, you know, the sort of thing you definitely would have wanted to have, but you're not seeing anything that is a big change. No. <laughs> Basically. Okay. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that's because we've just got to a point where everything oh, is I've got one. I've got really, one. really good. Oh, go on. Uh, Mr. Wolf is an Italian company that makes uh, tire inserts. Yeah. They've got a new one called a, a Comdom with a K. Right. 
And it's a foam insert that completely fills your tire, but it's also got an inner tube inside the foam. Okay. So you, you inflate the tube to uh, so the so the foam completely fills the tire. Uh-huh. And you can also use it to adjust like the the pressure of the foam or the density of the foam, essentially. Right. Okay, interesting. Uh, and you don't need any sealant or tubeless valves or tubeless tape. Yeah. And it should be unpuncturable in theory. Yeah. Mm, that's an interesting one. I can't think what else. Oh, I just got a box of Michelin downhill tires turn up. They look amazing and feel amazing. I haven't tried them yet. Yeah, I've not ridden any Michelin stuff since like Comp 24s and Comp 32s. So yeah, the I'd one like that, to try the new stuff. There's a, I can't remember, don't know the name of it, but it reminds me of the old Comp 16, which yeah. anyone remembers the Michelin Comp 16 from back in the day. It was unbeatable. Like, grip and uh durability and not durability of the rubber but the but the strength <laughs> yeah, they were tough. Of, the, of the carcass yeah super tough yeah i, I remember trying to get one on a rim the first time yeah yeah that was a nightmare absolute nightmare yeah yeah so I'd entirely was... like 16 or 17 psi in those yeah back in the day which yeah yeah nobody else would recommend i don't think until recently True, true. Um, nice. No, well, so bit, uh, now you've got me on that question. Well, you didn't really <laughs> get me. I've got plenty of answers for it. What, so what's system, next? Telemetry system, that's it. Sorry. Okay. That's the main one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Buying a BYB telemetry system from a Italian uh, yeah. company. Yeah, I've seen that. It looks good. Uh, you can integrate with a camera and brake sensors and suspension sensors. And you can do, you can compare your runs uh, back to back, see which run was fastest in different sections. And yeah, do lots, lots of different things with that. Nice. So, so what's, what's next for you then? You mentioned that you're, you've, you're not with, uh, with Nikola anymore because you've, you've been doing some time with those guys, like helping out on the demo side of things and getting people on the bikes. But have you got plans for what's next? No, I'm basically unemployed at the moment. Okay. And in three weeks, I'm going to be homeless. So, Ah, interesting times. <laughs> Which, when you say that out loud, sounds terrible, but I've never felt better in my whole life. Everything's amazing. Yeah, you don't seem too um, phased by it. No, nah, I sort of a choice, really, to move out the house. I was living in this huge house, well, huge apartment with my ex-girlfriend. Uh-huh. and a dog and all all sorts of stuff so I'm just trying to get more minimalist you saw my picture this morning in my studio yes I'm literally living on the floor and that any furniture which is every time I get rid of a piece of furniture or something out of the house I just get more relaxed it's great nice yeah no table no chairs a mattress on the floor a gym mat to sit on it's great yeah Interesting. Um, so uh, watch this space then for, for what happens next. What's happening next is, yeah, I've been doing the, I guess you call it the brand ambassador thing for the last 
couple of years since the left wing mm-hmm. bike. And didn't really work out how I expected it to in various different ways for various different reasons. Um, good and bad. Yeah. So I'm going to start doing some more testing, actually, of things. Okay. And I do have in the post a Radon Render e-bike to test. That's my first thing to test. So quite interested uh-huh. to get that. Yeah. So yeah, basically just going to start doing some more testing and opinion stuff on anything bike related. So anyone out there, <laughs> I know I'm not trying to turn this into an advert, but <laughs> any bike companies that want to get stuff tested or get an opinion on it or get it promoted on my tiny Instagram following. Uh, yeah. Get in touch. Cool. So you're looking to do that kind of more of as a direct feedback to brands thing rather than, uh, publishing it for, for riders to read kind of thing or a bit of both. Yeah. Either really. Um, yeah. so I just mentioned the Michelin tires. They just sent me a whole range of their tires just to, to try and no obligation to, do anything or say anything about them but if i give them feedback they'll be happy if i think they're amazing and tell both my both my instagram followers that they're amazing they'll <laughs> probably be happy interesting uh, cool. i'm going to start doing some youtube videos about okay some things uh yeah but more importantly cool. than that i'm trying to buy a farm in piemonte at the moment very nice with a house, a dream workshop, and a little bit of a mountainside to build trails down to. Perfect. And hopefully get the things that I mentioned earlier, like suspension dynos, uh, some kind of stiffness testing rigs or jigs, and start doing some more in-depth stuff. I'd really like to get into proper suspension testing because... There's only really Seb Stock from Bike Radar that does what would, what I think's good suspension tests and opinion. Okay. Um, but I want to do some a mix of on the trail and in the lab. Nice. To try, and get, comes... try and get to the bottom and find out who is making the best suspension or if anyone makes the best suspension or if it's all about setup or yeah cool well i hope it all works out well for you man that's uh it's an ambitious plan but i think it'd be awesome if you can get all that stuff together so yeah hope well it, it sounds it goes well. extravagant trying to buy a farm in piemonte but the fa- <laughs> the whole farm is less than an average salary in the uk so yeah it's it in perspective yeah, yeah. Like 20 25 grand Tom. yeah awesome good yeah. stuff man well we should start we should start wrapping up but we've got our final four questions that we've asked pretty much everyone so we'll hit those up the first one is if our listeners had 150 pounds which is somewhere around 165 euros i think at the moment to improve their performance on a bike what would you recommend they go and spend it on now this is the one question that i've thought about the most <laughs> and i've saved you 60 quid Awesome. Love it. Go on. And it's uh it's made up of four components, this one, four different uh-huh. things to buy. So these aren't in any particular order. I think they're all 
equally as useful. Number one is Race Tech Motorcycle Suspension Bible by Paul Teed Theed. I'm not sure how to say his name. Yeah. £24 on Amazon. I checked this morning. Yeah. And that's a really good book that explains to you in simple ways with diagrams on how your suspension works. Brilliant. Which, if you want to improve your riding, assuming your riding's off-road on a full suspension mountain bike, that is the best thing you can read to get your head around what's happening or and how to troubleshoot different problems. Uh-huh. It's a motorcycle book, but it's essentially the same. Yeah, still relevant, yeah. Uh, second one, yeah, £24 on Amazon. I checked this morning, paperback. Great. Don't buy it on Kindle. I originally bought it on Kindle years ago, and you can't see all the diagrams properly, so... Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and it's quite nice. It's like a big A4 textbook. Feels like yeah. being back at school when you're reading it. <laughs> Second one, the Ryan Leach Connection bike skills training app. Ah, uh, yeah, is that good? Um, fantastic. I've only done one uh, lesson okay. on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the one lesson that I did, or one section that I did, which was all based around track standing, uh, that made a huge difference in my riding and I really should do some more practice but I'm lazy okay interesting yeah I've seen that I've not done any of it but yeah okay and no affiliation again to Iron Leach but he did send me a free app when I worked at Pink Bike or free code and he still gives me free codes now when it runs out mm-hmm. that's £14 a month I think it was €19 US dollars. uh that's a really simple way just to work on your skills and if you want to get better on your bike you should always be practicing your skills yeah next one the bike james mtb strength training solutions or systems uh uh physical training course uh, okay bike james you said yeah not yeah, bike, games. bike james yeah yeah, james. yeah. Uh, used to train Aaron Gwynn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I've been doing his, well, I've been really lazy the last four or five years, but I've been doing his programs for about 10 years. Uh, and to keep it under 150 quid, you can buy the no, oh, I should have wrote this down properly, sorry. It's basically a body weight exercise course, and that's £22 okay. for the course. Yeah, I think twenty nine dollars. Uh, it's got different ones, kettlebells and dumbbells, and depends on what level of equipment you've already got or how much you want to spend on that. But yeah, twenty two quid for the the body weight one. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have them already, a cheap set of flat pedals, which checked on chain reaction this morning again, no affiliation. You can buy them from any bike shop you want, preferably go to your local bike shop and buy some cheap flats. But you can get them for about 30 quid, 30 pounds for a decent set of flats. Why Ideally, flat pedals? Why? I think, I believe, and this is could turn into a long answer, that you should spend 
70 to 80 percent of your time riding flats okay because it really improves your skills and then if you want to ride clips for sort of high performance riding or racing you should only use them for about 30 percent of your time including your performing performance days okay just so you don't get reliant on that interface exactly i think it makes you makes you lazy mm-hmm. makes you makes your skills lazy yeah fair play good answer that's the that's the most varied answer we've had to that question but you're getting a lot for your money there it's getting all you get psychological training or practice from the reading the suspension bible uh on the bike skills training from ryan leach physical training from bike james and yeah cheap flats to go and practice on awesome like it all right second question (laughs) (laughs) it's worth it it's good second question if you could wind the clock back and sit down with yourself age 16 what advice would you give him to think of the bigger picture okay give us a bit more on why that's the case so it's very hard to do when you're 16 and you've got no idea really about life and what's going to happen but I've never really had a long-term sort of idea of where I wanted to go in life. Yeah. And I've always had very short-term goals, which are good in some ways, and you do need also need short-term goals. But going back through this story today, I like, wanted to be a BMX pro. I wanted to be a World Cup downhill pro. I wanted to be an enduro racer. I wanted to do bike testing. I wanted to do all these things. And I always focus too much on sort of one or two years ahead. Okay. Because I think you need to, it's hard to develop this when you're 16, but you should develop a sort of an image in your mind of where do you want to be when you're 60, 70, 80, and what would you have wanted to do along the way? Yeah. Okay. And I think once you've got that idea into your head, it makes everything else, uh, you know, sort of, coming to fruition yeah makes sense yeah. you don't need to panic when you're 16 to do one thing or do another if you if you've got an idea of the bigger picture and you constantly work towards it you don't have to panic or do anything crazy just you know one step at a time keep moving towards it and you'll you'll easily get there nice all right third question if you could have a coaching session from anyone past or present who would it be and what would you want to learn from them I instantly want to say Nicholas Rios and Fabian Burrell. Yeah. But I have rode with them a few times uh, okay. in the past. And following Nico is unbelievable. Well, they're both unbelievable, but Nico is. Actually, I'm going to go with Nico. I want to know how he generates speed without doing anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've rode with a lot of like pro riders over the years in various types of types of riding. And you can normally see why the riders are better than you. Yeah. Like okay. they'll they'll be able to sprint harder or they'll just go like won't break into a rock section or they'll just commit to a flat corner 
way more than I'm prepared to commit to. And you, you'll see where they're, where they're getting away from you and uh-huh. why they're better than you. But Nico, you can just get on the bike behind him, sat off down a trail. There's like nothing happening to distinguish between the two of you. Like there's no nothing happening on the trail. Yeah. He just roll. He just rolls off. It's <laughs> <laughs> insane. Amazing. He just, he just, just stands there and just rolls away from you. Interesting. It's that stealthy e bike that he's not even like he's got some kind of push to push to pass button going on. It, you do think that's happening, yeah? <laughs> uh, he's not. You just can't see him doing anything. He just yeah accelerates, and then when he gets into the the hard stuff. Then he really gets away from you because he, then he, you start seeing the stuff that he's really better than you at, like setting up for corners and picking lines and, you know, not breaking all that, all that stuff. But yeah, just the way he rolls away from you on the flat is ridiculous. Interesting. Fair play. Yeah. Incredible ride. Well, both him and Fabian, incredible riders with an incredible amount of knowledge. So yeah, I think they would both be pretty. Yeah, they're both pretty useful to pick their brains yeah you need to get nico on the podcast he's great i know you've had fabian on a few times yeah nico we've we've have exchanged emails but we've never quite managed to make it work so hopefully if i can get to a race that he's at next year then we can can sit down and do it yeah he's too busy practicing rolling along the flat <laughs> that's what <laughs> it is it's just, yeah. it's just all those hours yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right last question what do you do every day that you feel benefits you I thought this was a funny question to try and answer. I can definitely name a lot of things that I do every day that don't benefit me. Okay. <laughs> but that's not the question. Um, I'd like to say that I, you know, do yoga every day for three hours and I'm like really motivated, but I'm a pretty lazy person, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, I do get to ride my bike a lot, which is good. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I'm sure is a benefit, and I'm sure there'll be people crying out in the comments when I say this, I'm 99% vegan diet. Oh, yeah, okay. Mostly trying to eat yeah, whole whole food, plant-based diet. Uh-huh. Have you felt um, a massive difference from that? I did initially. I've been doing it for... I don't know, no, eight years maybe, seven or okay. eight years. Yeah. Initially, massive difference in all different ways. And, well, yeah, no, I'm pretty lazy. I'm 34, 35 soon. I've done two training sessions this year, like in the gym, mm-hmm. and I ride my bike. I ride my bike quite a lot, but I ride e-bikes a lot, and I definitely don't do any training on the bike, really. Right. And I'm like 9% body fat all the time. Wow. Feel great all the yeah. time. Uh, like if pretty, like I'm not super fit, but I just feel it gives you like a natural level of fitness that I could take on pretty much any challenge really. Like if someone said, get on your bike now and do 200 kilometers on the road bike. I could, I'm sure I could do it. Yeah. Not because I'm like impressive. A, a fitness beast. It's just gives you a really good sort of natural level of fitness and health. Yeah. Fair play. 
and so should, should ex- expand on that that I also avoid as much as possible adding any oil or salt to anything. So okay, plant-based diet, low oil and salt. I'm yeah. sure the personal trainers will be shouting at me in the comments. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and what I've been doing for a few months now is sitting on the floor all day. That's a great thing that benefits you. Okay. <laughs> Not all day, but yeah. when I'm sitting down, I just sit on the floor. Don't have any chairs in the house. Yeah, you can't really slouch, can you? You've got to, you kind of got to use your body. You're not being supported. Yeah, and you're just naturally sort of stretching all the time, like stretching your yeah. hips a lot, sitting cross-legged. Um, yeah. And what I've done every day for two weeks now is two hours of Duolingo, six to eight o'clock in the morning, every morning. Okay. What language are you learning? <laughs> Finally, after living here for five year, four years, Italian. Ah, and how's it going? Is it is that that two weeks kind of enough to get pretty good? I guess you're already, you already. I mean, you already must have picked up a fair bit. A bit, No, it's absolutely terrible before, and that's helping. It's my, it's improving quickly, but the for a few years I haven't really done much with my brain, like writing or. Uh, learning really okay academic academic stuff and a couple of hours on that in the morning well first of all it helps you learn language which is helpful but second of all it really sort of wakes up my brain in the morning and gets sort of different pathways firing that wouldn't normally uh be firing i think yeah good time of day to do it as well yeah yeah, I'm not getting up at that time because I'm really motivated. I'm getting up at that time because I hate <laughs> the dark evenings. And when they brought in the six o'clock pub curfew in Italy, I was I started getting to bed at like half past seven, eight o'clock every night. Yeah, so you're so waking up a, early. Yeah, have a full day at doing whatever, and then get to the pub at four, four till six in the pub. <laughs> Perfect. And then bed at half seven. Winning at life. Good effort. <laughs> nice one. Well, it's been super interesting chatting and finding out more about your career so far and some of your experiences and thoughts on what's going on in the bike industry. If people have uh, have enjoyed it and they want to find out a bit more, where's the best place for them to look? Uh, Instagram, I guess. Social media, Instagram. Just uh-huh. Aston MTB or Paul Aston. Um, yeah. I've got a very sparsely populated website. Um, yeah, Instagram. Cool. Actually, All right. talking to things that benefit you every day. I've barely been on any social media now for four weeks, I think. I bet I that feel feels good. Great. Yeah. Turn it off your phone, people. Get it off your phone. You don't need it on your phone. <laughs> use it, use it on the desktop if you have to, but yeah, get it off your phone. Cool. All right, good stuff, man. It's been super interesting. I hope uh, I hope the farm purchase comes off. I hope uh, hope everything pans out, and look forward to hopefully seeing some more in depth testing from you in the in the not too distant future. Yeah, nice one. Thanks, Chris. Cool. Cheers, mate. All right, that's it for part two of this episode with Paul. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. 
A massive thanks to Dialed Health for supporting this episode of the show. If you want to join their Dialed Health shred and get fit and lean in January, then head to dialedhealth.com now and join the program. As a downtime listener, you can get $30 off their annual program by using the code DTP30 at the checkout. That's DTP, all uppercase, 30. The Dialed Health Shred starts on the 4th of January, so make sure you get signed up soon. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can grab yourself a t-shirt, sweatshirt or hoodie by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. All the proceeds go to help improving the podcast. You know what to do by now. Keep on spreading the word about the podcast. Keep telling your rider mates and share the episodes on your social media. It all helps me to keep this thing going. Also, if you've got a couple of minutes, a review over on iTunes is really helpful too. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, happy new year and get out and ride. (laughs) 